Hey, hey, welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. As always, I am your host, Finn Melanson, and this is another Golden Ticket Talk. We meet with Jeff Colt, a professional trail runner for On Running based in Carbondale, Colorado. Jeff punched his ticket to Western States with a third place finish at the Black Canyon 100K this past weekend. In addition to race analysis, we talk about his entry into the sport while working in the hut system of New Hampshire's White Mountains, his multi-year path to a golden ticket, which included near misses at the 2018 and 2019 Bandera 100Ks, his unorthodox training philosophy, his thoughts on the East Coast trail scene, and much more. There have been some conversations on the pod over the last couple of months that have inspired me to rethink some of my most basic assumptions about the sport in various areas and this was definitely one of them i'm really excited for you to listen let's get right into it welcome jeff here we go jeff colt welcome to the single track podcast thanks for having me Ben. first congrats on a golden ticket to western states second I got to give myself props. I don't typically do this on the podcast, but you were my dark horse pick in the preview show before the race. So I'm pretty stoked about that. And then three, it was crazy to watch the end of the race because I was watching the live coverage here in Sensman calling the finish. And the first two guys, Trueheart and Scott had come through. Everybody was fully expecting Castalis to be the next man. And then they see this guy coming through in an on running kit, charging to the finish no one could ID you. There was like five minutes of pure confusion in the announcer's booth. And then they finally got you. And and there you were, man, you got that golden ticket. You got the third one. So sorry, that was a long winded intro and I apologize, but how are you feeling? Like three days removed. Feeling good. My quads definitely felt the downhill a little bit getting out of, uh, getting out of the plane here in Aspen, but the last two days walking around and stuff have been good. So physically feeling like I could consider going on a jog or a bike ride mentally and emotionally feeling, feeling strong and confident. I feel like I went to Phoenix with a plan and executed the plan. And now I get to go to Western States and it's been about five years in the making. So pretty excited about it. Were you on a mission? Was the goal going into the race clearly to get a golden ticket or was this something that fell into your lap? No, it was to get a golden ticket and honestly to win. Like, I think if, I had a little bit more distance in the race. I would have kept hunting people down, but I tried to not settle for like, okay, I passed, you know, Anthony who was in third and now I'm in third. I just need to hold on to third. Like I tried to resist that mindset and just be like, no, like go win, keep running harder, keep running faster, go for it. So the golden ticket was certainly the the most important part of it, but I haven't raced a field with that many fast guys like that deep of a field before. And part of me was just interested in going to do a race that is not typically my wheelhouse with a bunch of people who I know can certainly run faster than me at shorter distances and just see how I stack up and cool to see. Hell yeah. Well, we were talking offline and I'm a huge fan of the sport. I can tell you're a huge fan of the sport. You can also talk X's and O's like no other. And we're definitely going to get into that, but I'm not sure if you've been on the podcast circuit in our sport before. And so maybe we can just get a bit about your background to start and how you got into the sport. So yeah. What was your intro to mountain ultra trail running? Yeah, I think I've always been a runner and I started competing in junior Olympics for cross country when I was seven years old. My dad, who was there crewing me and at the finish, like has been taking me to cross country races since I was literally six or seven years old. So a long time. I loved cross country through high school. I never really liked track all that much. Got to college, ran a couple of years of college cross country at Middlebury College in Vermont. And we always had this one training camp at Sleepy Hollow, which is this really cool Nordic trail center and um, running center in Vermont. And I was like, guys, like asking the captains, can we do more of that? That's fun. And they're like, Jeff, that's a risk. Someone's going to get hurt and they're going to be out for the whole season. That's when like the seed planted of like, well, this is pretty dumb. Like running on golf courses when we could be like actually running in the mountains. And 
I worked at the Appalachian Mountain Club Hot Systems up in the White Mountains in New Hampshire during the summers throughout college. As you pointed out, along with Katie Scheid, she and I were both geology majors at Middlebury and both worked in the huts pretty much through the same windows of time. And I think we probably associate our introduction to ultra running with working in those huts. So amazing hut system in New Hampshire's White Mountains. There's these huts that you pack in all the food and supplies to. You basically spend your whole summer hiking heavy packs up to the hut, hiking trash and waste out of the hut. And during the day, gallivanting around the White Mountains, which are among, if not the burliest mountains in the U.S. for trail running. It's just no switchbacks. So running in the whites and the allure of the hut traverse is what really caught my attention and expanded my paradigm from like, wow, a 10 mile run is a long run to like, well, 50 miles is pretty far. Can you talk about how the job in the hut system, being a caretaker has supported your ultra running career to date? Like, is there any elements of that work that you look back to like in particularly tough moments of let's just say black Canyon, for example, and you're like, wow, I'm glad I was doing that work when I was and things are easier in relation or something like that. Yeah, man. I'm, somehow we got to get this. I don't think any kids know they want to be ultra runners. It's something like you have a realization later in life, but Hillary Girardi, who's an amazing mountain runner out of, uh, out of Savoy, France, but also a New Englander. She also worked in the huts and she's got some great remarks on this specific thing, but working in the huts is pretty good for just making someone who is an outdoor enthusiast into a hardened trail runner. So our packs, you know, you pack 4,000 feet in 3.9 miles or whatever. So pretty steep trails and you carry a wooden backpack with boxes strapped to it upwards of like 80 pounds up to the hut. You get there and you've got maybe 10 minutes, maybe an hour to unload everything, get it put away in the fridge, shower, get changed, put an apron on, start chopping food for dinner, like prepping, you know, meals. And then you maybe have another couple minutes to have a breather. And then you're right in front of 54, 96, depending on the hut guests who are like there for a show and to be, you know, fed and entertained. And it's a pretty nonstop job. And if you think it's fun, it's really, really fun. But if you think it's fun, you're probably going to like something like, you know, endurance uh, sports where you are nonstop, like this mania that is the energy in the huts transfers really well to the energy coming into an aid station, like your ability to actually keep your cool, even when everything's going awry. I am, I'm fascinated by this culture of these hut caretakers. And I'm curious, are there any people that are lifers in the system? Like they, they get into it when they're, let's just say 18 or 19, and then they just can't get enough. And they're there until, I don't know, 60, 70 years old. Or is this something that like, is because of the demands of it, it, it burns you out by like your mid twenties. Both. Yeah. This summer in the huts is like almost catered toward 20 to 28 year olds, 26 year olds, maybe is like the high end, like college summer job. That's almost how they position it. And the crews are younger. It's a really high energy job and it's a really busy season. There's no like day where you're not catering to a ton of guests. The fall seasons are typically quite a bit slower. So you'll have folks who maybe worked in the huts 10 years ago, like in their mid thirties, be like, I'm going to go back and work a fall. And it's a little quieter. The mountains are a little colder there. You know, there isn't the summer, like vacation traffic with families, but then there's also, you know, caretaking. So the huts, you have a crew of five to 10 people at each hut working together. There's also caretaking and these like in-between season positions, which yeah, you'll have someone who maybe is 55 and shows up with her daughter and is going to take care of one of the huts for two weeks with her daughter on like a little life break and get back into the mountains that, you know, are still her heart home. So one of the things that I'm curious about is how you were able to pivot from 
trail running and hut life in the whites to this current scene out west. You mentioned the hut traverse, which maybe we can start there because we just had a guy, oh, it's probably four months ago, Jack Kenzel on the podcast. And actually you remind me of him a lot in, in, in terms of your level of stoke. And I think he has that FKT now. So talk, does, about yeah. your, talk about your involvement with that and then maybe how yeah. that FKT got you onto the current scene. Yeah. So I first tried my first summer in the huts. I like heard about the hut traverse and the FKT and I don't think very many 19 year olds have 12 years of running background. Like my, I've just been running for so much of my life at this point that it, like, it does feel like in some ways a different, um, you know, different advantage that I have just like, it's been pretty ingrained in, in my daily life for a long time. But when I was 19, I decided like, I'll go for the hut traverse record but I'm going to do it on the solstice, which on the Appalachian trail is hike naked day. And I'm going to do it butt naked. And so my first touch reverse attempt, I went left Carter at five in the morning, butt naked, tried to make it all the way to Lonesome Lake, which is about, it's like 46 to 48 miles and 17,000 feet or so of elevation gain. Needless to say, I did not predict how horrible chafing would be. And I dropped at like mile 34 five or so at the hut that I was actively working at and it eluded me for a couple more years. And I was feeling fit in the summer of 2014. That first year, I think was 2011. Summer of 2014, I was like, I'm going to go for this and I'm going to do it right. And I had a friend pace me for a little bit just across the Prezi Traverse and it was super foggy and we got separated and I ended up getting totally turned around in the fog and basically blew my chance that day. I still finished in a half reasonable, like, well, a good time, like just over 14 hours, but it was always on my mind of like, I know at that time the record was 1238. I was like, I know I can do way better than that. And it took me actually doing some other ultras and going and racing a little bit in new England. And then ultimately deciding to move out here to Carbondale, Colorado, where my sister and brother-in-law were living and I just was interested in starting new to really lean more into trail running and then decide like, I got to go back. I have unfinished business at the hot traverse and the summer of 2018. Yeah. A kid earlier in the summer who was from the Adirondacks, Liam broke the record and brought it to like 1137. And I was like, damn, now that's a harder record, like 1238. Like that just got bumped down by an hour, but I was still confident that I could go a lot faster. And I showed up, I brought it down to 1057 and brought the hut traverse back into the, the family of the AMC hut kids, because that's, you know, who started it in the fifties of like, let's see if we can connect all the huts in a day. And it really is like one of the coolest routes because it has like 75, oh, yeah. <laughs> 80 years of history. And yeah, then a good friend of mine, Jordan Fields, was like, Jeff. Really strong. I'm, yes, yes, he's very strong. It's like, Jeff, I'm calling to see, like, I, I think I'm going to go for the hot traverse. I was like, yeah, dude, I've been seeing on Strava, you've literally piecemealed every section so fast. I mean, he took it and I was like, don't think you can't go under 10 hours. Like, you can go so fast. And he, I think, brought it like 1028 or something got a half an hour better than me. And then this past summer, I was actually back East and Jack called me, Jack Kenzel. Yeah. and was like, Hey, so I'm going to go for the hot traverse record. What advice do you have? And I was like, honestly, man, my advice is there's don't put any limits on it. If we told anyone in the West or in Europe that this 48 mile run took 10 hours, they wouldn't believe it. So don't believe it yourself. Go. I'm sure someone can do this in under nine hours. And he brought it under 10, which was huge, but it's one of the coolest routes. It just, you actually need to study it. Every time I go back East to visit family, I do some miles on that section of the whites. Also the Pemi loop. I think the Pemi loop is also just like another crown jewel of the East before we get to Carbondale, because we could talk about the East coast all day. Most of the audience here, they're salt Lakers, they're Reno people, they're Boulder people. They don't get the East coast or at least 
they don't have that much experience. If you could paint a picture of the marquee routes besides this hut traverse, and then maybe some other races back East that you consider to be like high profile or marquee that people should check out. What are your lists? Yeah. So the white mountains in New Hampshire are awesome. The Adirondacks in New York are awesome. The battle that's been going on in the Adirondacks for the last like decade over the great range FKT is so cool. I have so much respect for Ryan Atkins who is an obstacle course racing monster, but also a phenomenal Nordic skier, phenomenal runner. And I feel like anytime someone steps on that turf and takes his record, he's like, cool, I'm flying back to the Adirondacks. And he has it back in a week. The ultra scene, or I guess I, I should say the FKT scene in the East has been stronger than the ultra scene for the last like 30 years, 40 years. And why is that? Why is that? Do you think? Because the routes are really inspiring. I don't think they're contrived. No offense to the rest of the country, but like the reason that Ben nephew has had the most FKTs for the last like 30 years, I know he was overtaken, but Ben nephew still has also a the legend most in, in my mind. Um, is he like wanted to go after these really ambitious linkups and trails and did so with a vigor. And if you look at the FKT boards, he's up there because like that was the scene in New England was FKTs. It wasn't looking at Western states per se. There's some attention to the Vermont 50 and some of these other trail races, Seven Sisters, I feel like gets a good amount of attention in Northern Mass. But the mountains themselves are off limits to trail racing, but they're the most attractive mm. objectives. So the Prezi Traverse, the Pemi Loop, the Hut Traverse, the Mahusik Notch Traverse, those have been established FKTs since like the 40s, yeah. um, the 50s. So I think long before anyone in Boulder cared about running. And that's a big thing in, I think, the history of New Hampshire's running and the Appalachian Mountain Club definitely plays a pretty key part of that as well as the Adirondack Mountain Club or yeah I think it's the Adirondack Mountain Club in the Adirondacks like with their 46 4,000 foot peaks people go after them they want to link up certain summits or all of them and it's the only real places you see like these noble diratissima events of like I'm going to link up the 46 4,000 foot mountains that are in one of the largest national parks in the country in one effort or, you know, same thing over in with the 48, 4,000 footers in New Hampshire, it's loco. I, you just reminded me of a couple more crushers like Andrew Drummond, for example, would love to talk with him because he's done some really cool stuff up in like yeah, the Jackson he did, area. He did he's, the White Mountain Duratissima, which is, it's nuts. Um, but no, I, you know, that's a fantastic take. I've lived out in Salt Lake City for enough years to be indoctrinated by contrived racing culture. And I always forget that the beauty of the East coast is based on the fact that you really can't build races in a lot of those mountain ranges for various reasons. And that's what makes these FKT attempts so special. I interrupted you though. What do you think are the races? If if we're going to talk about contrived races for a second, are there any races back East where like you think those are legit? And if West coasters want to come over and test their metal, they go there. Yeah. uh, I mean, I think the, Vermont 50 was my first like proper ultra attempt. And I went out with the leaders and thought I could just run 50 miles off the couch kind of, and it crushed me around mile 34 and dropped out. It's not Jeep roads. It's not four wheel roads. It's like the most beautiful, pristine dirt roads in the world and just the prettiest countryside as well as amazing single track. The Vermont 50 is an amazing race. That area around Mount Escutney is really gorgeous. Shout out to the Big Brad Ultras in Pownall, Maine, Bradbury State Park. That was my first 50K or ultra that I actually finished. That was a really cool race. And I think there are a number of smaller races in the East that just have a great culture. There's this guy, Doug Mayer, who occasionally contributes with Trail Runner. He has a race called the Randolph Ramble, which is a 10K race in Randolph, New Hampshire. And each year really fast people show up and, you know, for a 10 K trail race, it's like the best event I can think of. But in terms of the, like, I guess, bigger marquee races, 
they're still being established. I know Ragged's has just gotten underway in New Hampshire. There's a new one that's the, I think it's the Jigger Johnson 50K and 100K that's going to be in the Tri-Pyramid area. Yes. So that'll be the first one to actually have permitting within the White Mountain National Forest. They were trying for that 100-miler across the Northern Whites too. I forget what it's called. I don't know if that's still going to happen, but I saw that and I was like, that would be cool. And to give some folks some reference, not every trail in the White Mountains is like climbing the South Ridge of Superior, but you should expect that on a trail that is like for children. And that's like, there are no switchbacks. You don't have these really like graded trails for pack animals. The trails were developed in the early 1800s when the objective was like, I see that summit, I'm going up. And there's a lot of trails. You look at a trail map of the White Mountains and it's a little overwhelming because just the little Randolph Mountain Club in the northern corner has built like hundreds of miles of trails in this you know, swath, which would just be like Alta. I want to touch on two more topics before we get to Black Canyon. The first is your current location in Carbondale, Colorado. I'm curious to get a sense of why you moved there, what the opportunities are for training, if you have training partners. And I took a peek at your Strava and it's relatively non-traditional, at least in, in my opinion, like you do a lot of schema in addition to running. And I was surprised by yeah, the lack of volume in your build up to Black Canyon, despite being incredibly successful. So I put a lot in that, but take it wherever you want. Yeah. I moved to Carbondale. Basically my sister and brother-in-law were here and I applied for jobs in Truckee and Carbondale. My brother was in Truckee. My sister was in Carbondale. I got jobs in both places and flipped a coin and came to Carbondale and have been here since December of 2016. It's an awesome town. It's this banana belt of what is known as the Roaring Fork Valley from Glenwood Springs, Colorado, south to Aspen. And um, in Carbondale in the winter, it might be negative 10 in the morning and it might be 40 or 45 in the afternoon. So you always have a nicer part of the day. I like, I do get out and try to train as much as I can, but the trails around here, like they're typically pretty good to run year round. We're right next to the Elk Mountains where Aspen Mountain is, but also where like Capitol Peak, Pyramid Peak, the Maroon Bells, these really awesome mountains with terrible rock, like crumbly, horrifying rock. So the high country is actually really entertaining. A lot of great alpine lakes. And I originally moved out here to work for a marketing agency in Carbondale. And about a year and a half ago, started with a different job for this company called ZipFit and we make ski boot liners. My other passion in life has just always been skiing, uh, Alpine like ski racing growing up and then telemark skiing through college and backcountry skiing. So I work as the brand director for ZipFit and do everything from all of our outward facing copy and content to athlete management to product design. So a lot of my winter is consumed by skiing, which I love. I learned from Ted Mann, who's a like 10 time, uh, hard rock top 10 finisher that embracing the seasons is the best way to stay mentally healthy living in this Valley. And I think that's true. I don't put my Alpine skiing on Strava because you're riding lifts. I don't count it as really anything. And I probably run five days a week and ski Alpine ski three days a week and ski tour, maybe a day or two a week. So I'm very active. My training block I I tell people this and they don't really believe me, but I try to stand on my feet from 6 a.m. until like 8 or 10 p.m. every day and just avoid sitting down. And I think that's important. I think like the whole idea of the professional ultra runner who like can wake up, eat a big breakfast, stretch for a while, go do their workout, come back, get horizontal, roll themselves out. I don't have time for any of that. I definitely am not napping. And I think standing on your feet is the best way. Like anyone who's worked at a trade show knows how exhausting it is. Like, I think it's the best way to be comfortable on your feet for 24 hours. If you have to go run. Yeah. I got to second that. No, um, I'm not the athlete that you are, but I worked as a server at the Rustler Lodge up in Alta, Utah for two seasons. And those two seasons, I was in the absolute best 
running shape of my life because I was taking 50,000 steps a day in addition to the training. Yeah. There is something to be said about that 100%. For sure. I might only get a four mile run in, but that doesn't mean I wasn't incredibly active all day. And like, I think in 2019, after a pretty disappointing dropout from CCC, I got just like pretty turned off with my training being so focused on running and so regimented around running. I wanted to just like see, yeah, what would happen if I really only looked at time on feet vert and basically tried to do two things a day, every day, whatever that is. If that's alpine skiing and running, great. If that's alpine skiing and going for a backcountry skin as well, great. As long as I'm still getting some running in every week, I just wanted to step back from like the prescribed, like, oh, I'm supposed to run 80 miles a week. And that's still not enough type of mentality because I didn't have much mental balance. And I think I tested it a couple of times in 2020, 2021. I'm tough was really like the big litmus test for this theory of mine that like, I'm such an active person that I, it's not that I shouldn't, you know, run a lot. It's just like 80 miles a week is, is not realistic for me for like my world and my balance. And I didn't have a single low point in that hundred mile race. Like I was just excited and smiling and like feeling good the whole time. And I felt like I could have kept running forever. And that's kind of how I felt on Saturday. Just like, feel really good. I know I'm not as fast as those guys, but pretty sure I could have run a hundred mile race on Saturday. And I'm pretty sure most of the other folks who finished couldn't have. So you alluded to it back in 2019, you did some sort of reevaluation. Is, does anybody else have this playbook or did you just build this? Did this just come from a lifetime of running and, and testing things? The whole standing thing? The whole standing thing, but also just like you mentioned like that Ted man quote, like you just kind of move with the seasons. Where does this whole playbook come from? Honestly, I've tried to gather little pieces from a bunch of different folks. I remember for a while, Cody Reed was coaching me. And I remember that Rob Carr gave Cody Reed a piece of advice that was like, bike more than you think you should. Basically go spend time on the bike. Hayden's doing Um, that too. Hayden Hawks is doing that a bunch now. Yeah. And That sounded cool to me. I could never afford a road bike growing up, but I had a road bike here in uh, Carbondale and got to get out and ride it. And it was really fun. And then I could borrow a mountain bike and go ride that. And I was like, wow, well, I'm pretty excited about getting the thumbs up to bike a lot because biking's fun. And I found for just all zone two, and I really basically live in zone two. If I go anaerobic, I'm not a fun person to be around. Like I don't do that type of training anymore. So for like zone two training, you can get six, eight hours a week, pretty easy on a road bike. And it's not pounding on your knees and it's still really impactful training. Um, the, like I, you know, that little tidbit I think came through the Cody Rob Carr and certainly like just being dumbfounded by Anton and how much time he spent on a bike. But with the skiing part, I like, I really wanted to do Western States and I also ski a lot, like to the point where I'm happy I have a career in the ski industry because it's really important to me. Um, So like Bandera, I chose that race because the skiing doesn't really get good till after January 6th as it is. So I was like, well, I'll just run through the first part of the winter and then I'll get to ski the rest of the winter until like my next race. And 2018, I also trained for Boston and like basically trained through a lot of the winter. And I was just like, not that happy. So I remember Ted Mann, yeah, saying embrace the seasons. I knew that just in general, I wasn't a great athlete to be coached. And like, I kind of felt like I had enough of an understanding. I got awesome tools from working with Cody Reed. I never would have known like to just do two big, long back-to-back uh, runs or back-to-back long runs, you know, to like build or mimic mileage, but just wasn't willing to kind of sacrifice all the other things I love about the Roaring Fork Valley and living here to do just like one sport. I'm going to train for running. 
Dude, I, I apologize because I, I feel like I'm totally burying the lead of Black Canyon, but we will have to do another podcast because we have a lot to talk about. One more thing, though, I promise before we get into it, and that is, <laughs> dude, you've had a pretty fascinating buildup to Black Canyon. There's a really interesting storyline in that you missed two tickets at Bandera, both in 2018 and 2019. I mean, really in a Hollywood type fashion, like if you were scripting this out, it, it's pretty interesting. And so it just makes what happened this past weekend even more interesting. So maybe talk about those near misses and the lessons learned there and what was applied to this most recent training block to correct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this might come off as kind of funny, but I don't know if you can count my most recent training as a training block. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I did get up to 65 weeks one week and there is some type of a ladder buildup. I'm like looking at it right now. And I did have a watch mess up for a good part of 2021 where my watch just sucked, but I got a new watch and all of my running from the last six months is like up there and it's, there's not a ton of it. The whole deal going into Bandera 2018 was, um, and the, I guess my whole mindset behind it, I started working for the PR agency that represented Hoka. So I was like working and writing press releases and stuff on Jim Walmsley and Hayden Hawks and these like athletes. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can run that fast. Like I want to go do that and had a pretty good, you know, couple of races in 2017 in the fall and got in touch with Cody. And I was like, Hey, I want to qualify for Western States. Um, like I'd love any coaching advice you could give. And I didn't realize Cody was also going to be going to Bandera. I think we both chose Bandera because the results from the previous year in 2017 looked vacant. And that was because the top four guys all got lost and DQ'd. We didn't really know that, but we were like, this looks like a gimme race. We'll just go to Bandera and get golden tickets and go run Western States. Showed up. I'd raced Mario at US Trail Nationals for the marathon. He's way fast. He, I was like, okay, Mario Mendoza's here. That's going to be trouble. I know Cody was pretty fast, but I'd also never run a hundred K. And before the race, Cody was like, what are you doing for water? And I didn't, I actually, I had like an, an eight ounce little tiny, I think hard bottle handheld. And he gave me like a Nathan handheld and was like, you should bring this, like you need more water, but we didn't talk at all about food. And first 50 K went good. I was a couple minutes back from Cody um, in third, Mario and Cody were just leading together up to mile 50 went good again. Like Bandera was a pretty fast course clicking off like seven forties, seven thirties. And I just hit a proverbial wall. Like felt like I ran into glass at mile 50. I had no idea where I was, no idea what I was doing. I was like right next to the aid station. Didn't know there was an aid station there and got in and I think Walmsley was there crewing Cody was expecting me to come in right after Cody and to be able to tell Cody how far back I was. And I was like a couple minutes off and yeah, basically was like, dude, you need to eat. Like you haven't eaten anything. I'd had two goos. So hundred or I'd had 300 calories up till that point in the race and just gave me a bunch of Cody's food and ate a bunch of Oreos and he sent me off and I ended up finishing fifth. It was definitely a letdown, but still a good race. And I didn't have the ability to go travel to another race that year. Like that was my chance. Um, 2019, I planned it a lot more meticulously, had a really good training block, chose Bandera because I'd run that course before, right before the race on new year's day, I got a notification that, um, I don't remember if it was flooding or like some horse event, but they had to move the race. So we like rebooked our hotel. They had to move it like quite a bit further away from um, Hill Country State Park or whatever. So new course, my like advantage of running it before I went out the window and that, that race went well. I ran my best race, I think in a lot of ways to date at that race and kudos to Tyler Green and Chris Mako because they ran faster than I did. And I remember leaving the 50K, I was feeling bad and I was running with Mako. I think we were in fifth, sixth. And he like, was like, how are you doing? I was like, I think I'm going to drop. I feel really bad. And he was like, well, Jeff, let's look at this. You know, who's in front of us, this guy, Tyler green, he's out there. 
Matt Daniels, he's never run 100K before. He's not going to finish. Uh, and he like broke down each person who was in front of us. And he was like, Jeff, right now you and I are racing for second. So you can drop out, but like you're, you're very close to a golden ticket if you just finish. And I was like, okay. And I stopped to pee and think about it. And he just freaking dropped the hammer on me and took off. And I think the rest of that race, he had two minutes on me and I could always see him and I could see Tyler and I just could not close it on him. And that was another letdown. I kind of was like, you know what? Western States is going to be hot, Jeff. It's going to be hot. You don't like the heat. Go do something in like Europe. Go do something where there's mountains. Take your attention off Western States. Just stop like caring about it. And that mixed with COVID and a lot of travel restrictions put me through 2020 and 2021, not really obsessing about it to the same extent. Then you have this training block. I signed up for Black Canyons like uh, probably January 20th. January. No, I went to Italy, January 17th. That late. I signed up for, yeah, I can pull up the email here, maybe January like eighth. So I just figured I was like, if I'm going to shoot my shot for Western States, I know I still have a lot of fitness from January 10th. I know I still have a lot of fitness from I'm tough. I didn't run a ton over the fall, but I was incredibly active and it's like, I know how to race hundred K and just go do it a month before the race you signed up yeah i got the confirmation on january 11th dang yeah i know i mean i'm in awe honestly i was looking at some of the other guys who ran and their training blocks and like they're freaking amazing i've never done that in my life i've never hit a consecutive week over 100 miles in my life because the only time i've hit over 100 miles is when i've run a 100 mile race and it's like, wow, like you did 12 weeks at a hundred miles or 95 miles. It's like I, uh, I had my peak week, the week I signed up for the race. And it was like 45 to 65 miles split between two weeks. Let's talk about the race because there was a lot of strong people in it. And there was a ton of attrition, a lot of DNFs, a lot of people just falling way off pace and stragglers just barely getting to the finish line 11 12 13 hours after the fact you were one of the rare examples of a runner running strong splits right to the finish and i'm curious was that the plan heading into the race what was your strategy yeah that was the full plan i had some good back and forth with mako on friday on thursday night i like flew into phoenix my dad picked me up at the airport he had flown in a little before me and he was like, what's this race like? I'm like, I haven't checked out the profile yet. I don't know. Wait a second. So, wait a second. Mako's still in the sport. Is he still involved? Because I haven't seen him anywhere in the last like two years. Mako is doing great. I think he's doing his own thing. He even told me on Friday when we were texting, he was like, Hey, I'm out for a run. I'm going to text you back when I'm back. So he was running. Okay. But uh-huh. I think he's a living life and I think he's a happy man. Okay. But, uh, Random aside. Yeah. My dad asked me about the course profile on our drive to Prescott to like where we were staying. And I pulled it up and I was like, holy shit, this is a net downhill race. And he was like, oh yeah. And like, that was the first I checked out the course profile. I knew that it was less vert than Bandera. Vert is my friend. Like if I could do hundred K with 25 K of vert, I'd definitely do better. But I was like, all right, so this is going to be really fast. And I started digging into Strava stalking on Friday morning and I like was looking for something and I was looking for the person who started slow, but had an awesome finish. And I remember right after Mako beat me at Bandera, he went to Black Canyons and he got second to Black Canyons as well. And I remember it so painfully because he took the ticket from Bandera. So I didn't get to go, but he passed the ticket at Black Canyon. So Senseman got to go. And I was just like, that sucks. Like, Mako, why couldn't you have passed on the ticket at Black or Bandera if you knew you were going to go just run people into the ground at Black Canyons? And I found his result. I knew he came in late at the race and performed really well. And I like basically wrote out all of his splits. I was texting him about it. Like, was there anything weird? And I planned all my splits around his race in 2019. 
And then after, you know, a good amount of back and forth, he was like, Jeff, it was a different course, like totally different second half of the course. We were on roads a bunch. Like those times don't even count toward the proper course record. I wouldn't like plan on my thing, but he was like, I would say start slower than you need to start hydrate. And if there is any water in the creeks, just get in them and dip into the rivers, dip into the creeks. And I shopped around for other Strava runners, other Strava stocking. It's like Tyler green last year. He was pretty good. He started slower, came on stronger in the second half, but he still started faster than I wanted to start. And Nick Curry. I actually, I didn't look at Nick's. I'm sure he ran a really, really smart race, but basically I had all this evidence that people who went out fast here typically bombed mm. and I knew I didn't want to be any faster than 435 at Black Canyon City. And I knew I didn't want to be any faster than 350 at the 50K. And like that calculated or trans translated to like, don't run faster than 645. And if you can run like 710 for the first 20 miles. And it was really hard. I was like actively stopping and just being like, you guys should go. And I was hydrating a ton had a ton of water in my stomach. I could feel it sloshing the whole first 50 K. I think my dad and I were doing the math and I drank something like 22 liters of water during that race. Um, like 40 something soft flasks or some, something a lot. And every time I'd like end up with someone, I had some great miles with Brian Whitfield. He's this really sweet kid from Colorado Springs. And he was like, yeah, last year I went out too fast. Like I'm going out slower this year. I'm not making that mistake. And I was like, yeah, definitely. I'm going to pee real quick and then just like let him go. And then I'd get back with the next guy and they'd be saying the same thing. And I look at my watch. We're still running like 635. Stop, let them go. So it was like active pump the brakes until the river crossing at mile 35. And you can like psychologically, you can handle that as someone who's competitive, you want to win. You can handle that and, and, have faith that it's going to come back to you later in the race? Well, yeah, maybe I'm psychologically strong enough. Maybe it's just, I'm so terrified of the heat. Like I do not perform that well in the heat, at least my two previous races when it was really hot, tell me that. So I knew if I went out, even if I was feeling good, fresh, only 40 degrees in the morning and downhill, like if I was running faster than what my like kind of zone two comfort is, which is 640 pace. Like if I was running faster than that, I was going to end up digging myself into a hole. So I kept just trying to be as calm as possible. Stay. I moved faster to the aid stations, which almost like, it wasn't like I was going to dilly dally, but then I was moving faster through the aid stations early on than a lot of the guys who were running faster. So then they'd try to pull me again and I'd stop and pee and finally got to the river crossing, I think at 35 before this pretty good climb up and then descent into black Canyon city and Mako's words, he was like, get in the river. And I spent all of December and the first week of January with Giardia in just a horrible way. And I looked at the river and there was just cow pies everywhere and cow tracks going right up to the six inches of shallow stagnant water. And I just ran in and did a full backflop and got up and was like totally invigorated and turned it on and tried not to turn it off till the finish. So maybe, you know, let's just talk about it. So you took the ticket to Western States this has been a goal for the last three, four years, five years. Yeah. What's, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to do anything different than you've done in <laughs> other parts of your career because it's Western States or are you going to keep doing this whole, like, I'm going to stand for 12 hours a day and just have faith. That's a great question. I should point out the fast training I do, like when I run fast and for me fast is like six thirties, I try to do as much downhill running as possible just for running economy and turnover. And I'm pretty critical about the training I do with the exception of if I have to run with my dog, I have the notoriously laziest dog in the world. 
He's the dog that if his owners go on a run and they run five miles, he's going to sit and wait at the switchbacks and see where they go and then just go straight. He'll run like two and a half or three miles. So certain runs get hijacked because my dog's really lazy. But going into Western States, I'm excited about skiing the next couple of weeks just because it's still winter. Definitely get some good ski touring in. I might try to get down. I've always really wanted to do quad rock, either the 25 or 50 miler down in Fort Collins. So I might try to get down there for one of those as a tune-up. You can definitely expect that my mileage will be in like the, the 50 to 80 range. I'm not going to do 140 mile a week. I don't need vert, like training for I'm tough, training for CCC, training for run rabbit, even like the goal was always to do around 24 hours of training on your feet. And I just run slower than those guys, right? Like 24 hours, a lot in a week with like maybe 40 to 50 K of vert in a week, but that's only like 80 miles for me. And it's a lot of vert. So when I don't need that vert for Western, I think I'm going to try to just do more downhill tempos, downhill progression runs. And yeah, I think the, the thing I have going for me from cross training and from doing a lot of other athletics is just durability. And if I can keep my posture and keep my food and nutrition and hydration plans together, like I don't break down that easily toward the end of a race. Um, so hopefully I can do the amount of training that kind of puts me in a position where I can run with the top 40 for the first 50 miles and then try to crack into the top 10 or top five in the last 50 miles. That's awesome. Have you spent any time on that course before or, and will you spend any time on the course? Or are you going to onsite it? No, I'll probably end up onsiting it. I've gone up uh, Palisades of Tahoe a couple times. My brother lives in Truckee. So I've skied there a good amount. I ran up it the morning of his wedding because he got married right there. I haven't been on any of the course where they're out there. I've run in the Sierra a decent bit, but yeah, I'm not going to, I don't have like time or funds to go travel out there for a training camp. So I'll just kick it here and keep running faster roads at elevation until it's time to go out there. And then it sounds like you'll try to create a similar experience to black Canyon where you will stay extremely patient. You'll let a lot of people get ahead and do their thing. And then towards the end of the race, it'll be like a goal to be in the top 10 or the top five. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Cody Reed used to give me grief for this. Cause like, I not really willing to go out in first. I, and like, I know like that's like all the way back to what, like the prefontaine mentality of like, that's not really racing. And it's like, well, great. Like I'm not a, 210 marathoner, like, you know, Reed Colsiat, like I can't do that speed. What I can do is run smart races. And most of my races I've started quite slow and I end up in the top five or top three or on, on the top of the podium. So I'll do that. And the key part is just managing temperature, managing hydration and not getting overly excited. One thing that strikes me about you is you just have this lifestyle that lends itself to what others would work up to in a training block. Like, I think one of the big takeaways I'll have from this episode is if you just stand a lot and you are, and I don't don't mean to put it that way, but if you do a lot of standing, if you do a lot of like various activities, you're like well-rounded just from a lifestyle standpoint, moving your body, you can do well in this sport. I mean, there are obviously like talent factors and whatnot, but I'm just struck by how the equation is just being a person that moves often. Yeah. And, and like, time on feet and time on feet, like time on feet is huge. Yes. yes. There is a time and a place for putting in like really high quality work, but like just being a time on feet fanatic is huge. Yeah. When you were saying, you know, working up at, working up at the wrestler lodge, is that it up in Alta? Lodge, yeah, yeah. Um, like I bartended for the three years from 2017 to 2019. So I would run in the morning. I would go, to my office job where I would just stand at the standing desk. I'd try to go on a bike ride at lunch. I'd finish work at five, five 30. I'd start bartending at 6 PM. I'd bartend until 1230. I'd go home. I'd sleep for six hours and then I'd do it again the next day. And like the bartending was really good training. It wasn't necessarily the best for my alcohol consumption standing. I learned at that job 
is just like really, really good. And my uncle had this kind of amazing moment this past spring, we were in San Francisco and he was like, you know, one guy at a party back, back in the day, like he was always the last guy standing. And I was like, how do you always party so late? He said, Tim, I don't sit down. Like I just stay standing and I don't fall asleep. And for some reason that had like a profound effect on me. I was like, wow, I just need to be standing. Right after this conversation, I'm going to go hop on Amazon and search for like better standing desks and all of these things just to check myself throughout the day. That's, yeah. that's, that's brilliant. Um, clearly you're a fan of the sports. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about the state of the sport before we wind down. What's exciting you most about our sport right now? There's a lot of public awareness growth on the sport right now, which is pretty cool. And I think with that comes people starting to think outside of the box or maybe get budgets from sponsors or these kind of different, uh, different reactions to like, all right, like, you know, should everything be about racing or should everything be about like the FKTs? Like 2020 was like the year of the FKT. But I think the things that are most exciting to me are like Ricky Gates run across America His like every, you know, every street, every city, Ricky just gets me excited. Dakota biking to his races. Um, like that type of behavior of thinking critically about your impact and what you're doing in the sport and also enjoying life more while doing it is really cool to me. Um, like the people I think that Ricky met on that trans trans, uh, continent journey um probably had more of a profound impact on him than like a single race result might and thinking creatively about what running means to me gets me excited and the sport as a whole the most exciting thing in ultra running is courtney de walter um on every spectrum fast up distance she's nailed it so courtney's about the coolest thing I can imagine. I think she should be the national role model. I'll tell you, going back to your point on people like Ricky Gates in the sport, I think what inspires me the most about them is they don't rely on someone else's imagination to do what they do in the sport. Like I definitely see race directors as artists. Like they've created this course and it's coming out of their brain, their imagination. And it's a beautiful thing. But like Ricky's like, I'm going to go and like create something on my own. And it's going to be, yeah, of like my doing. and. I think that that's a cue that a lot of people in our sport could take. And I think FKT culture attempts to pick up the baton there, but he's an inspiration that way. And I'm honestly surprised that more stuff that he's done hasn't taken off. Like I know that every street X is a big thing, but just more versions of people's own imagination taking off. Yeah. I guess maybe it was Solomon or maybe it's just like they work with some athletes, but like, Max, Ricky, and Dakota all have some form of like a run hut run thing where like people can just go with them and like running to hut trip, like huts is really fun. Like hut trips are the main thing I look forward to in the winter, like going and skiing around huts and being back in the huts. I'm still a hut kid at heart. Um, So like, I don't know if that's, that's Solomon or that's just those guys all having similar ideas, but that's a cool theme that I think plays out. In a, in a great way. I think the flip side of that, of what concerns me about the sport is like this yeah. idea of coaching. Like my philosophy is I like running. It's a great place for my head. I have a really like clear head when I run. And mm. I think I'm my best per- my best self when I run, but like, I feel like it's so easy for people to be like, I don't know if I could do that. And their first turn is like to a coach. Well, and I, I understand if that's like the right fit, but I think it's become somewhat of a cultural, um, like, oh, that's the right way to go is to get a coach. And like, I'm confident everyone in America for the most part, and not trying to be ableist here could run a half marathon off the couch. It's just recovery is going to feel different for people who train for it versus people who didn't train for it. And yeah, I want to be the person to tell people like, you can definitely do that. And you don't need a coach go run four times a week, run five miles each time. You're going to go have a 50 K and it's going to be awesome. 
and you might want to do like a 15 mile run at some point leading up to it, but you're going to, you're going to do it. The coaching culture I think is kind of clicky, kind of toxic and like running is so beautiful because it doesn't have like, I'm looking at Red Hill and Carbondale and I know that if I wanted to leave this call right now, I could leave in my Hofflingers, in my slippers and go run up that mountain and nothing like would stop me from having an awesome time. Like there's no boundaries to like, you can go barefoot if you need, like a decent pair of running shoes is not that expensive. There's no reason to buy into this. Like these are the dietary things you need each month. These are the coaching things you need each month. Just be free, like have fun, I think is like the kind of core that, um, yeah, that Ricky is super good at, but the people who I really admire in the sport, I think that's their, like, their goal is to go out and have fun. And sometimes coaching makes it feel like more of a chore and less fun. Dude, well, I, I said it earlier, we'll have to schedule around two because there's a ton of topics independent of this whole golden ticket series that we could riff on for hours. And honestly, I do probably take the opposite view on coaching, but I love hot takes and I love where you went with that. So we'll do it in round two. Let's go into the lightning round though. And the first question I have for you is you've been in the sport for quite a long time. Are there any things that you used to believe strongly that you have since changed your mind about and why? Um, yeah, I, Hmm. you know, I think early on, I definitely had this like open mind of like, anything is, uh, anything is possible. Like I could go, you know, try to do gyms rim to rim to rim. And I don't know, I can't do it until I fail at it. And like, I think that was kind of my attitude. I think in like more recent years, I've uh, kind of been like, well, that thinking isn't really that helpful for me or like constructive. I think it's led me astray a couple of times. And I think just really honing in on like, what is important to me if I want to spend my time doing this um, and trying to be more targeted and in, uh, in like my interests and ambitions, but also in what I spend my time thinking about. So I try not to, I used to check, I think I run far every day. I try not to check. I run far very much. Occasionally when there's a race that happens, I'm like pretty intrigued by it. I think I've like found actually more of a, more of like my excitement and jitters through just like the current track scene is really exciting. And I like looking at those results because I don't speculate on them. I can't run a 12, 35, 5k. And I think the, like, it was hard for me to be a super fan of ultra running and try to be a competitive ultra runner. I think I needed to just have less of my mind on it. Next question. What's a recent book, movie, or podcast, or any piece of content that you've consumed that has changed the way you think or see the world and why? Oh, I got it. It's called When We Cease to Understand the World by Benjamin Labatut. And it's a Christmas present for my girlfriend. And the book right off the bat is just like pretty strange and uh, fascinating, but I really like science and I really like history. And it like looks at all these different astrophysicists, chemists, mathematicians, and their contributions to the world. And then it flips their contributions on their head of like how that maybe uh, like defined World War II or these like major changes that our world has been impacted by. And the it's such a strange book, but I'm so captivated by it. Definitely check it out if you like kind of science. It's not like science fiction. It's like there's a little bit of fiction, but mostly it's just about science, actually, like scientists and then and then history. And it's just like capital A absurd. Like it's bizarre. Last question. If you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? I would do a, this Gary Snyder um, 
poem, it's short. Um, stay together, learn the flowers, go light. That's it. I really like it. I try to remind myself of it most days. Like I said, we'll have to do a round two soon. Can't thank you enough for your time. Congrats on the golden ticket. It's going to be fun to follow the journey and race day. If there's any folks that are meeting you for the first time and they want to follow you on social or they want to get in touch somehow, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, I'm easy dog on social. There's a easy underscore dog and reach out there. I think my email's there too, if you'd like to. And again, the community is like the part that kind of drives trail running the most and makes going to races and stuff the most fun. So definitely say hi. I love, love meeting folks and figuring out why we're all doing this. Awesome, man. Well, hey, until next time. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks, as always, for listening. I hope that conversation inspired you in some way, shape, or form. It definitely had an impact on me. Jeff is a great dude to riff on all things ultra running, and hopefully we will have him on the pod again soon to go deeper on topics we barely scratched the surface on in this episode, including training methodology, coaching, being a fan of the sport, and more. One last thing before we go, if you haven't already, please leave a rating or review in whichever podcast player you listen to this on. That's all I ask. Grateful for your support. Until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson. You are listening to the Single Track 